0: So this morning, we're going to be reading from 2 Kings, chapter 6. Um, So if you want to turn in your Bibles to 2 Kings, chapter 6. All right, more towards the beginning of the Bible, so I hope you can find that. It's, as I said, 2 Kings, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Now the sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See, the place where we dwell under your charge is too small for us. Let us go to the Jordan, and each of us get there a log, and let us make a place for us to dwell there. And he answered, Go. Then one of them said, Be pleased to go with your servants. And he answered, I will go. So he went with them, and when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. But as one was felling a log, his axe head fell into the water and he cried out alas my master it has it was borrowed when the man of god then the man of god said where did it fall when he showed him the place he cut off a stick and threw it in there and made the iron float and he said take it up so he reached out his hand and took it once when the king of assyria was warring against israel He took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than twice, once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of the servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I might send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And then the Syrians came down against him. Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master." So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come again on the raids into the land of Israel.
1: Thanks, well, Good morning. Keep that passage open. We want to look at that passage together. From a young age, we all instinctively know that the world is not safe starts with the monsters under our bed but but they never really go away do they we never really grow out of them we lock our doors at night we ensure our homes and our incomes and our lives because we know that life is not safe that unseen dangers lurk in the shadows but there's a way to be safe in this world even as we live in the most frightening of times. And we see it in these strange but true stories from 2 Kings chapter 6 that was read to us just a moment ago. They show us how to deal with difficulty and danger. And they give us great courage as we look at the world we live in today. So I want to show you uh, how you can feel safe in the world we live in. And I want to start with that first story that was read to us in the first seven verses as we learn how to deal with difficulties. Now, I don't know about you, but when you read the story of the floating axe head, it's one of those Bible stories I don't really spend a lot of time on, partly because it's weird uh, and, and partly because we just don't know what to do with it. I mean... If you were writing a daily devotional and uh, and this was your passage for the day, what would you write? What would you say uh, that could help other Christians to grow? Well, I can tell you a couple of ideas of what people have written about this passage, because I've looked around. Uh, Some take it to be a moral story, kind of like a biblical Aesop's fable. And the moral of the story is, they say, You should keep your tools in good shape (laughs) or be, uh, beware of lending your tools to people who will break them. Others have said, well, well, this is, this is the Old Testament and the Old Testament points to Jesus. That is absolutely correct. But so what they say then is this story must be about Jesus. And so we need to find the allegory. We need to, we need to get the Jesus story that's in this story. And so, well, there's a way to do that. So we need to symbolize everything. The axe head, well the axe head must be the man's soul. And the river is the waters of judgment. We see that in the Bible quite a lot. Uh, His soul has fallen into the waters of judgment. He can't get out by himself. And so the solution is, For the man of God to throw a piece of wood on the waters. And, of course, all of us know when you talk about wood, what are we talking about? We're talking about the cross, the cross of Christ. And so this must all be about salvation. And if I do a little bit more mental gymnastics, I could even get full immersion baptism out of this as well. (laughs) Now, you might think, okay, I totally made that up, but I didn't. I actually read that in a Bible commentary. Well, not the full immersion baptism part, but I threw that in as an extra. But um, this is the problem when we come to passages like this. And, And I think for a lot of people, when we read this kind of stuff, we say, well, that just makes no sense. Or I could never have got there on my own And and... And we end up ignoring the Old Testament and thinking, well, I'm going to read about it in the New Testament anyway, so I am as well just skip there. Uh, it's so much less hard work. And it's a real shame because this is a real historical event, and that's where we, we need to start. We need to start by realizing that this story is a real story, not just some made-up fable, not an Aesop's fable, not a not an allegory. This is a real historical event that really happened. And instead of me saying to myself, well, what is this uh, going to tell me about myself? We should say, what is this telling me about God? That's a great place to start. And we'd end up in a much healthier place when we start with those questions. This is a real story. What is it telling me about God? So let me show you how that works out in the story. So, As it was already read to you, I'm not going to reread it again, but here's this man who borrows an axe, the axe head flies off as he's trying to chop down a tree, it falls into the river, and we say to ourselves, big deal, go to Bunnings and buy another one. (laughs) But in those days, axes were incredibly expensive and rare, and, and it wasn't an easy thing to just go get another one. Uh, If we were to compare it to something that we would understand today, it would be like borrowing a friend's car, a really nice car, and then accidentally driving it into the river. And then you realize it's not insured and you're fully liable for it. It's that kind of sense of dread that has come upon this man when he says, alas, my master, it was borrowed. He knows he's in big trouble. That's the kind of feeling you should be having uh, from this passage. And so he cries out to Elisha, the man of God, who by God's power incredibly brings it back to him, brings, brings the axe head back. So what is this telling me about God? Well, for one thing, it tells me that God is a God who cares about his people. God is a God who can bring good out of an evil situation. God is a God who rules over nature. He's not bound by the laws of nature. God is a God whose power accompanies his word. And I think specifically in this story... When you read it in its larger context, you'll see that, that this is a, a little story squashed between two very big international stories uh, on either side of it. Uh, big, big stories that have massive influence over the nations where this is just a tiny little story of an unnamed man who loses his axe head and God works in his life. It reminds us that here we have a God who's not just concerned about the international events. He's concerned about your life, about the little things that are going on in your life. That for most of us, if not all of us in this room, we will just be in the history books an insignificant little blip. Sorry to say. But that's pretty much what most of us will be according to the history books. But according to God, we're much bigger than that. Here is a God who watches over us, who cares for us, who knows and has numbered all the hairs on our head, even Josh's head. And because this is the Old, sorry, Josh, <laughs> and because this is the Old Testament, it is right to ask ourselves: How does Jesus add to this picture? This must be heading towards that great event of, of Jesus, who, who is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And, and of course, Jesus is the reason we can pray to God in the first place with any prayer that we want to pray. He is our Lord and our Savior. He is the one who walks on the waters, who calms our troubled fears, who redeems us through his death on the cross for our sins, who's going to set everything that is wrong in this world right again one day. We trust that even as we pray little prayers... That our heavenly father hears us because of Jesus, because he has made it possible for us to do so through his death on the cross. So how do I respond to a God like this? Well, I need to know that, and I need to remind myself that if I think that God is too big and my problems are too small, then... I'm not going to ever really come to him with all my issues, with all the struggles I'm going through, with all the trivial things of my life. Uh, you know, I'll just be praying those big prayers. But I, I won't ever really come to him with, with the, the little things that are going on. Uh, and, uh, and we'll end up carrying those things ourselves. We'll end up piling up those little things, brooding on those little things, struggling with those little things alone until those little things really become big things. And instead of casting them on to my heavenly Father, who cares even for the littlest of people and the littlest of problems, we end up carrying them all ourselves. He has a story that reminds us that God cares. He really does care about even the smallest details of my life. He can answer my smallest prayer when I cry out to him. Even if it is just for that empty parking space. And I've been driving around and around and around at the shopping center. And I think it seems like such a waste of time to ask God. that. But no, we, we're depending on him. We are crying out to him. We are, de- we, we are bringing everything to him. And not just you know the big things or the things that we think are the big things. And God will answer those prayers according to His will. Uh, we might not get that parking space. We might not get the calf magically floating out of the river and back on the, the bank again. Um, but God can do it. We we don't we don't um, pray and think to ourselves, well, you know, please Lord, save me from this. But I don't think You're going to do it. We we trust that God is has the power to do it, and we take even those prayers to Him. Now, I've labored the point, but but I I really want us to to have that in mind because the next story, the second story that we're looking at, uh, builds on this. As the, the Bible commentator Dale Ralph Davies puts it, no one is as safe as the people of the Lord, not just in the trivial matters of life, but also, as this next section shows us, even in the most frightening of times. But let's move on then from dealing with difficulties to dealing with danger in this second really exciting story. And we, we pick up the story, this true story again, uh, in verse 8, where Syria is fighting Israel. In fact, uh, you'll notice if you've been reading through 2 Kings uh, and this first section of 2 Kings, that Syria has just been their nemesis. They keep fighting back and forth and back and forth, and it kind of goes up and down. There's a bit of peace, and then there's war again. And And in this section, well, it's almost written in a comical way. Every time the, the king of Syria goes into his war room to plan to attack Israel uh, and sets a trap for Israel, when he gets there, they they're not there. And he every time he sets another trap, the king of Israel dodges it. And he's thinking, what's going on? It gets to the point in verse eleven where the king of Syria is convinced that his war room is bugged, that that his account's been hacked. That they've put all his details on the dark web. That everyone knows what's going on. And so he says, okay, which one of you is the traitor? Which one of you is sold out to the king of Israel? And his servants say, none of us. We, we didn't do anything. We promised. We are clear of this. In fact, though, they know exactly where the information is being leaked. They say in verse 12, none of us, uh, uh, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words you speak in your bedroom. I mean, it doesn't get more intimate than that uh, for this king. You can imagine how he must have felt like, what did I say in my bedroom last night? But here he is being exposed, completely exposed By the prophet of God, who's not even, who's not there listening in, uh, you know, with a cup against the wall, but who's in Israel and can, and knows exactly what the king of Syria is planning. There's no way he can escape. Which makes the next part uh, even more comical because the, the king's cunning plan is to take Elisha out. When you think about it, Elisha already knows what he's planning to do. And he knows he knows. So why is he... Anyway, that's you just get an idea of how stupid his plan is. How can he ever expect to catch Elisha when Elisha is always listening in on his plans? But anyway, he finds out Elisha's at the city of Dothan. Verse 14, he sends an entire army to surround the city at night. The next morning, Elisha's servant gets up, bleary-eyed, he opens the curtains, uh, half asleep, he puts on the kettle, there's a bit of a glint in his eyes from the shields of, of all the, the army out there, and he kind of makes his coffee, and he starts to, to kind of, his brain starts to, you know, kick into gear like my brain does, after that first cup of coffee, my eye slowly starts to open, and suddenly he realizes what's out there, and You can imagine the scene, you know, this slow motion as the cup drops to the ground and shatters as the servant runs to Elisha and saying, Alas, my master, what shall we do? Verse 15. And Elisha says, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Wait, what? I mean, there's... Two people, one, two, and there's one, two, three, many, lots of people out there. We definitely outnumbered. How is that possible? And so Elisha prays. One of three times he prays in this section. And all three prayers have to do with seeing or not seeing. And, of course, we know what happens. As he prayed to the Lord, then the the servant's eyes were opened And uh, there we see it in verse 17. He saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is the Lord's army, his powerful, pure, holy army. And they are surrounding the army that they can see, the physical army. There's no reason to be afraid. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. You know, Jesus said something very similar, even at the very darkest time of his life. Matthew 26, his enemies had surrounded him in the garden of Gethsemane. They were about to take him away to be killed. Peter pulls out his sword and he swings it around wildly thinking, this is it, my final stand. And in Matthew 26, verse 53, Jesus says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But then how should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus certainly isn't lacking in resources. He's got 72,000 angels at his beck and call. Champing at the bit. They're just waiting to come in. Ready to to wipe out all the enemies. But Jesus holds them back. Because the cross is the will of God, will of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. It is all part of God's plan and the way in which we will be saved. Now what does this, before we go on, what does this all mean for us today? Should we be praying these kinds of Elisha prayers, praying that God will show us the spiritual forces around us, the angels, uh, show us that we have some sort of angelic protection. Should we be, be getting involved in deliverance ministries or praying for territorial angels or, or praying for the battles between angels and demons that, 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 that you, there obviously must be demons who want to rule the city of Perth and we should be praying against that. Well, the short answer, I think, is no. No, we shouldn't. Why? Well, Simon Van Brisham, uh one of our pastors at uh, All Nations Church, he released a book two years ago, I think now, called Fear Not, uh, where he picks up on the whole issue of spiritual warfare and angels and demons. Great little book to get your hands on if you haven't uh, already. Um, and you can find it online as well. Fear Not by Simon Van Bruchem. He says in there, Paul and the other apostles never appeal to angelic guardians to work among believers or encourage us to pray for angelic protection. They never, the, Paul and the apostles, never appeal to them or ask us or, or, or um, encourage us to pray for angelic protection. Even if angels are protecting God's people, and, and you could work that out from Matthew 18 verse 10, it seems to hint at that. It's not something we need to be overly concerned about. The same can be said uh, when, it, when you see angels in the Old Testament. Um, in Daniel chapter 10, we learn that, that there are angels over specific areas and, and, and countries. And, and Daniel's told of this celestial battle that he was previously unaware of. But he's not told to pray for the angels or to figure out which angel belongs to which area or or to pray in some sort of way to influence the battle, as if he could. If anything, the, the Bible tells us to stay out of this. It warns us because we can get so easily distracted by it, that we so easily start looking all over the place for angels and demons, wherever they might be. In Colossians chapter 3, some people have become so fascinated with the angels, they've begun to work out this hierarchical structure, and they're beginning to worship the angels. And of course, that's idolatry. Because as Hebrews 1 tells us, Jesus is superior to the angels in every way. Angels can't save us. They can't. An angel cannot save you. Only Jesus can. And so, we should not Allow ourselves to be distracted or think that in our prayers in some way we can influence and control the spiritual realm. Even the most famous passage on spiritual warfare, Ephesians chapter 6, is an interesting passage because it doesn't tell us to fight. It just tells us to stand. To stand firm in the armor of the gospel using the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, the Bible, and to pray and keep praying that God would send his gospel out to the people. Every time the Bible pulls back the curtain and shows us the spiritual realm, every single time, you can look look through there yourself, every time we've shown what's going on in the spiritual realm, it's not there for us to now suddenly think, well, now I've got to get involved. It's really for the same reason why Elisha prays for his servant's eyes to be opened. And that is that we might understand that despite outward appearances, despite what we see in, our, in the physical realm, God is fully in control. That he is working on a level that that most of the time we are completely unconscious of. That That we can trust him to keep us safe. Not necessarily safe from all physical harm. But certainly safe from all spiritual harm. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you believe that? Then don't worry about the angels and the demons and what's going on there. Which explains also for us, when we go back to the story now, that that when you look at this angelic army, they don't actually do anything. Did you notice that? Uh, Even though uh, at the click of Elisha's fingers, they could have wiped out the Assyrians in one blow, they don't. Instead, as Bruce Waltke puts it, just as Elisha prays that the servant's eyes be open to heavenly realities... And that is real. So he also prays his enemy's eyes would be blinded to earth's realities. And so Elisha prays and the armies of, uh, of Syria are struck with blindness and confusion. Um, uh, probably more confusion than blindness because it seems like they can still kind of see. And in another comic turn of events, Elisha walks up to them and says... Um, these are not the droids you are looking for. This is not the way. And let me show you the way. And he leads them off. And and he takes them to the man they seek. And so he takes them by the hand and walks them all the way into the capital city of Israel. Right into the heart of, uh, of Israel's um, encampment. And then he prays again for them to be able to see properly again. And now they are the surrounded ones at the mercy of the king of Israel who, as you may have noticed, is very excited about the prospect of killing them all. Um, Did you see how he he says to Elisha in verse 21, my father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? You can almost hear the the bloodlust. And Elisha incredibly says, no, don't do it. Instead of the bloodbath that we would expect in verse 22, Elisha calls for a banquet. And uh, and they eat together, and Elisha sends these men back off to their king. No doubt a little bit sheepish about everything that's happened. Uh, but more than that, they're treated with unexpected grace. It's a strange story. Not only did God protect Elisha by disabling the Syrian army, at the same time he protects the Syrian army by restraining the king of Israel. Even unwashed Gentiles can have the Lord as their shield and strength if they would just have the eyes to see It's an incredible, it's a, it's an unexpected picture of God's grace, even to His enemies, that they might turn to Him and be saved. And it's an invitation to all of us, no matter where you are, no matter where you, 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 whether you, you believe the Lord is your King or not, here is the open invitation to all, even if you have been living in resistance and rebellion against God all your life, and you know it, Even if you know you are a sinner, you can turn and be saved, even today, as you make the Lord your king. For no one is as safe as the people of God, even when they live in the most frightening of times. From the seemingly small and trivial things of our daily lives, all the way up to the powers and the principalities, even to those invisible spiritual forces that we are unaware of most of the time that lay beyond our normal senses. God is in control of all of it. So as the story from Elisha shows us, the plans and the purposes of God often are not seen by the naked eye. Nor can they necessarily be rationally deduced from looking at the world around us. When we, we look at the world around us now and we think everything is going to pot. We think Christianity is on the decline. We think that, that there's persecution coming. We think all these kinds of negative ideas. We think God must be losing the battle somehow. But it has what, is, what the scriptures reveal to us, the spiritual reality that we need our eyes open to is that no, 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 God is in complete control. Even over the spiritual forces. That's the great mystery that was once hidden is now revealed in Christ, as Ephesians chapter 3 puts it. That God, God's great purposes was to send His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, whose plans and purposes were a mystery until that point, but now, has been revealed in his death on the cross for our sins. And as Ephesians tells us, as Colossians tells us, through his death on the cross for our sins, Christ disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them at the cross. That's the spiritual reality our eyes need to be open to, especially as we live in a world of difficulty and danger. Where where we may feel unsafe, but actually there's no one more safe than the people of God. Not just in the trivial matters of life, but in the most frightening of times. Because Jesus has conquered all our enemies. Jesus is on the throne. And there's nothing that can separate us from him. There's a way to be safe in this world from physical danger, from spiritual danger, from the ultimate danger of God's judgment that is coming to all. There's a way to be safe in Christ. As Psalm 2 says, blessed are all who take refuge in him, who find safety under his wings. So pray. Pray. Knowing that this is true, pray. Pray the big things. Pray the small things. Pray for God to open our eyes to the spiritual realities we're living in. Pray that he would confuse our enemies with grace as we love and care for them, even as they persecute us. Pray for his kingdom to come, for his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray as we we sang a moment ago, knowing that our God is a mighty fortress who will help us, even as our ancient foe, the devil, seeks to destroy us, that we would keep looking to Christ, the one who has won the battle decisively, and now we need not fear ever again. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, God's truth abideth still his kingdom is forever let's pray heavenly father we thank you that we can we can have such certainty that we are safe in your hands not because of what we have done or because of our great abilities or our vision or our our spiritual insights into things no but because of what you have done for us in christ we thank you lord that that the Lord Jesus did come willingly to die for sin, for our sins, if we would trust in him. That he has broken the power of the devil to accuse us of our sins in his death on the cross. And that though we still live in a world where we are uh, affected by sin, where there is wickedness and evil abroad, uh, where there are the evil spiritual forces seeking to distract us, and discourage us. Oh, Father, please continue to fill our hearts with courage and conviction that we are safe in your hands, that we are in the safest place in the universe because we have taken refuge in Christ. And may our lives, uh, even in these uncertain times, be shown to be to be lives that are are full of love and grace to our enemies, that they may be confused by us because we are full of joy, because we know who you are and what you are doing in our lives, and that we know that there is nothing that we cannot bring to you in prayer. And so please help us, Lord, to pray in Jesus' name. Amen.